Exceeding Expectations, Episode 60. Do you have concerns on cybersecurity? What are your thoughts on AI, AR, VR, GR, and many other things? Our, our guest this week is Dr. Jackie Taylor. And shit, it's an amazing episode. We cover so many different areas, like how the, the Internet of Things came about, and she was involved in that. Uh, some discussions she had with Sir Tim Berners Lee, the creator of the Internet. Her work with the Chinese government, with the British government in Brexit, and, and many, many more. So that's this week's guest is Dr. Jackie Taylor. This podcast is all about helping you give better experiences to your customers. Um, with the aim of helping you get better reviews, referrals, recommendations, and rebookings. If you do like this uh, podcast, we'd be fantastic if you could leave a review for us on iTunes or one of the other podcast platforms. And why not share the episode with someone who you feel may get some particular value from some of the, uh, some of the things discussed in this week's episode. Today's edition of Exceeding Expectations, I am speaking with Dr. Jackie Taylor. How are you, Jackie? Um, I'm great today. Good to speak to you, Tony. And where where do we find you today, Jackie? I'm um, in the UK today and I'm somewhere not far from London. Because you certainly get about a bit, don't you? You're in many <laughs> different locations. I do, I do, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm a, a hot foot traveller, um, which has been a result of my work for the UK, and I'm also a strategic advisor to the Chinese government, so that means I cover a fair portion of the world. And so, I'm, I mean, there's so many places we could start. So let's go back to, so what you're doing now, I mean, how did this all, this all come about? So... Um, I think it's easier to start at the beginning, given where I am now, because it's a cycle. Um, so I'm I'm an aerospace engineer, and my dissertation built the case for British Aerospace, which is our UK aircraft manufacturer, to utilise new jet engine technology. And the purpose for designing that new jet jet plane was to solve noise pollution in our cities. And that actually was about focus on people, us as people. But ironically, that didn't lead to an engineering career because that aircraft was hugely successful off plan, as we call it, which means people bought it before we built it ever. Um, And it was a Middle Eastern order. So I was a female lead and I wasn't able to work on the project because back in the day, um, that was not a done thing. The Middle East could say we won't have her leading it. And so I wasn't. So I um, RMD was a pilot friend of mine and he said to me, an engineer needs to figure out what is going on in that computing department, as it was called in those days. And that was mm. where I went. And I actually, um, literally, that's one of the first things I want to talk to you about in terms of what we, what our clients call us, call the program Zero to Hero. So Flying Binary mm. is my company. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Flying Binary. And we effectively <clears throat> create a wow experience for our Um, customers because we actually are focused on them all the technology that we build is for them and the first component of everything we look at we have an equation we're engineers um, and the first component we look at is opportunity so when I had that opportunity arise it did not look as an opportunity it came disguised as me having the end of my aerospace career 
Um, but actually what happened is allowed me to, with some really dedicated other engineers and computer uh, folks at the time, to roll out a brand new approach across the IT industry called software engineering. And it was it was that that gave me my first break because I launched my first company on the back of that. And I've been unemployable for over 40 years now. So that's sort of, you know, starting there to today, I'm going to flip straight to today. I, we build, Flying Binary builds the technology for the Internet of Things. I can explain what that is, but essentially it's an engineering challenge. So whilst that opportunity looked very much not like an opportunity when it happened to me all those years ago, the reality of it was it actually is a full circle because now I use every part of that engineering background to do what I do. And in fact, most of the, the employees in my company are engineers. My co-founder is an engineer. And, and so who typically are your clients then? Hmm. Um, well, I'm a strategic advisor to the UK government, which has been a very interesting journey for the last three and a half years, as the UK decided to leave the European Union and, and look at new, uh, new horizons, um, mm-hmm. which in the Internet of Things is a, is a complete change to the way the world works. And um, essentially... I'm also a strategic advisor to the Chinese government. You couldn't have, uh, you know, from one end of the spectrum to the other in terms of what I do. And the work that we've done um, in Flying Binary has positively impacted 90 nations across the world as we've, as we've rolled out what we do with data and our technology and positively affected over a third of the world's population. And essentially what we do is we build the Internet of Things. And what that is is... I don't know if your listeners will know what it is, so I, I apologise if I'm sort of going a bit too 101 for those that understand. But the mm. reality of it is Internet of Things is um, something that has this world has never experienced from a technology point of view. Lots of things that we all know and do are as a result of a change in technology that's changed our technology industry. Um, mm. But the Internet of Things is very different. It actually changes our society. It changes the way we work in the world. It changes the way we live in the world. Um, and so for me, I'd done some what I did not understand to be this, but I was informed by Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who built the World Wide Web that we build all our online businesses on, that it was fundamental web science. And I said, that's fabulous. What is that, that web science mm. thing? And he said... It's actually what I was building 20 years ago at the time. This was 2009. And I want your help to build the next 10. Now, there's not very often that somebody like that says to you, I need your help. So, mm. of course, we, I went along. And essentially, that changed my perspective on the way the world works. Because on the 12th of March uh, 2009, when Tim hosted us at the Royal Society, it was a 20th anniversary of the World Wide Web, but only 18% of us are online. So this conversation we're having today could not have taken place because that vision that Tim had 20 years before in CERN, where he created the World Wide Web, was yet to be realized. And so mm. the reality of it is the research I'd done that I did not understand what I'd done. I thought what I was doing was pursuing a passion of mine, which was to understand how our young people learn. Um, I had a cohort of a thousand young people in something called Generation Z. So Generation Z, if you're not aware of, of that cohort of young people, are the ages 26 to 16. If any of you are, li- are listening, uh, well done for listening in an auditory way. I know how hard that is. 
But but for you, that's what we we started on our mission in 2009 to build technology to leverage the talents of Generation Z. Because as a cohort, they're the very different set of people than have ever inhabited the earth. And and when we started out in 2009 to do this this web science, which I didn't even know what that was. And if you don't know what it is, it doesn't matter because Tim made it up. But it's what we call what we need to do in order to make technology enable what we need. So Tim founded the World Wide Web because it was his passion to help humanity find its own truth. That's a very simple way of of encapsulating something quite complicated of what he did with the web. And my passion, which is a second part, the second component of the equation, you know, I talked to you about opportunity, which often does not come dressed as opportunity as it didn't for me. I mm. found my passion because I understood this Generation Z cohort that I was working with. I built an IT platform for their GCSE and GCE examinations because they were there was a phenomenon that was going on with me locally that I'd been asked to take a look at where I realized this was a different group of young people. Now, I probably should have had a clue on that because... Our son is 26 today, and he is the first part of that cohort of Gen Z. He was a very, very different um, uh, human growing up. He had some amazing abilities, but he didn't fit. So if you happen to be in a square peg in a round hole, it could well be there's a really good reason for that. But my passion, having understood these young people and their talent, what Tim had asked us to do in 2009 was, how do we build technology? What is the technology? What do we do to get these, these young people's talents to the world? And actually, that, that was my passion because these people are incredible. And, and if you haven't come across Gen Z, um, you have actually, or if you haven't, get onto YouTube because Greta Thunberg, who was, is a passionate young lady who, who addressed the United Nations at 16, and effectively laid down a very uh, coherent argument backed by science as to why climate change has to be now, she's Gen Z. Mm. So if you haven't Mm. seen Greta speak about the the space we're in now, I really do um, ask you to to look at that. And so from that, that that is my work today, except it's moved on. It moved on in January. So we may want to cover that next, Tony. I don't want to keep talking if, um, Mm. if you've got questions. But that is my work, to bring technology to be enabler for the talents of us all. To unleash our magic, really. And so, so when you say, you know, so you were helping both the British government and and the China Chinese government as well. And is that in the same capacity, in the same sort of way, or were you doing very different things for? for both oh, of very different things. China's a very different world. It was a complete. Um, you know, I had no idea. I'd never been to China. The first time I was invited there. Um, China has its own view of the world, which is very. Um, it, it's very inward looking. And that's not just because of its philosophy and its culture. It just generally is very inward looking because it's a huge place. And mm. and each of the regions, I work in a variety of the regions, are very, very different. So somebody says, oh, I've been to China. I think, hmm, you, you've been to an element of China. How much of China do you know? Because they're very, very different regions and they've got some autonomy. But equally, mm. the philosophies of um, a communist regime and a UK regime, very different, you know, again, ends of different ends of the spectrum. But the Chinese actually understand some of the technology that we build. And they came across my work in 2014 while I was working for 
uh, as an independent ministerial advisor to the UK government. And they took that and they ran with it. And then they completely ran out of steam in 2016 and said, that doesn't work, you know. And I said, very interesting. It doesn't when you do it like that. So we had, um, you know, a common discussion and they said, well, we don't actually understand what you're talking about and how the UK has got the same start point and we've ended up in a different place. So um, I was appointed for two years to help them work that out. And it's, and it's all around how does technology need to be deployed to be put in place for us? Because it's actually about us. It's about our clients. It's about the society that we are creating. And, and so, it, you know, it's a very different space than what I do in the UK, which is not driven by the same levers. And so in, in China, is it related in any way to education or not at all? No, not really. Um, they are looking to effectively, in China, um, expand the world's knowledge about what China can do. Um, mm. That is very much a Chinese perspective. And the reality of it is that's, you know, a good goal. But they, the one thing that they needed my help with specifically was they are rebuilding across China the places where people live. And mm-hmm. so they've got a massive program of 600 cities that they are changing all across China. And that was the mm-hmm. thing that wasn't working. So um, I'm the world's first smart cities are, if you've never heard of smart cities, they're the future, future business hubs of the world. Um, and, and so it depends on which country you're talking about. And it depends on which part of the country sometimes as to how mature that is. But essentially, whatever you do for your job now, whichever customers you serve, then um, the smart city um, changes across the world for the Internet of Things will change that. So it might be our customer, our central banks. We actually uh, work uh, for the Bank of England, for example. Um, Our customers might be um, companies like UNICEF because we have a um, very much a social direction on what we're doing because our agenda of flying binary, if we were to pare it down right to the bottom of it, it's about inclusion. It started off with inclusion of Gen- Generation Z and unleashing their talents. But actually, the, the digital changes we have across the world, on average, will exclude between 10 and 20% of any population across the world, either by challenge, because for whatever reason they can't, and that might be an accessibility issue, or by choice, they don't want to be connected. So the Internet of Things mm. is something they, they uh, deliberately avoid. For us, that's not good enough for a flying binary to say, well, that's, you know, we leave them behind. So we have mm. an inclusion agenda, very much believe in the diversity agenda that is sweeping across, obviously being female. Um, but the reality for us is the technology, if it's going to enable what we do as humans in the Internet of Things, it, it needs to be able to be leveraged by us all. So we have a different um, 80% of the world. Largely, we can do everything I've just described. And they, as they decide to get on board and online and do their business online, live their lives online, that'll be fine. 20% of the world, that's not quite true of. So that has to be treated differently because those are the people effectively currently disinherited and may continue to be disinherited by this change of the Internet of Things that we talk about and I want to introduce one concept for to frame the things I talk about in terms of how to approach whatever you do as business into this new world I want to describe uh, quite a global level because obviously I don't know your listeners and what they do what their you know what their passion is and what they spend 
their time doing and what their ambitions are. But if I was to contrast what I'm talking about now, I call it the empathy economy. I launched that concept at Davos to 3,000 world leaders in January 2019. And that's in in um, contrast to the systems that our business is running today. And, and the businesses that run today run in a competitive environment. Once technology is connecting us online and the majority of the world connects online, we just round about 50% of the world that takes advantage of that now. It will be a collaborative fabric, not a competitive one. So it's a fundamental change in the way um, we do business. And so one of the things that I would say to anybody listening is the empathy economy is a, a change of mindset as well as a change of plan. And I've been working with um, 27,000 CXOs since um, December 2016, not all at the same time, but it's built over to around about October 2018 to actually help them understand what that meant for their organizations, for their people, and and changing the, the whole way in which we approach change with our organizations, and even changing what those organizations do for the Internet of Things. So it's a, hu- it's a human change, but it's a change at a societal level. It's not just the technology. And, and so with all of these these changes that you were talking about, how do you think it will change things over, say, the next five, ten years? Well, I think if I take the third part of my equation, which is vision, the, the vision that, that inspired me was I could see how I could engineer a future to bring the talents of Generation Z to our web world. But I had absolutely no clue how to do it. So I walked out the road sighting that day and my team said, fantastic, where do we start? And I said, I have no idea. Um, But I do know that that's what the future holds. Now, we are today in 2019, where 40% of the world's economic power is influenced by Generation Z. So in just 10 years, Generation Z, who were 16 at the time that I did this work, now at 26 are influencing 40% of the economic power. What does that mean? That actually means for most organizations, most businesses, and most of our careers, there is a whole cohort of clients and customers that need to be served in a very, very different way. And so for me, it's about how much of that moves forward. They will, they, the social generations, let me just backtrack a little. So I'm um, Generation X. um, So Uh, The baby boomers, which we all know about, Generation X, which followed. Then there was Generation Y, which is the start of the new cohorts that started to be connected online. Then the millennials, which I expect most of your your listeners know about. The millennials are followed by Generation Z. And the difference between the two is that Generation Z are the first generation that have been immersed on the web. They've grown up. They're completely confident with it. Lots of people call uh, the millennials the digital natives. Not really. They're adaptives. But Generation Z knew nothing nothing else. They're effectively, they were born the year the web went live in 1993. So by the time I started my work, they were at 16 coming into the end of their, their early education system and coming into our workforce. Ten years on, 40% of our economic power is in their hands. So that's a massive shift. Now, the bit I need to tell you about is why, you know, to properly answer your question. In Davos this year, what I said was, but that's not where it's going to stay. 
because Generation Z, whilst their talents are being unleashed across the world and we're seeing that transformation, I've already mentioned Greta, but you've probably, you, you and your listeners got probably a whole host of people going, oh yes, now you've said that, you know, or I've got customers that, and so I realize that I've got to adapt what I do for what people are asking me to do. Gen mm. Alpha, Generation Alpha follow Generation Z and they're the children of the millennials. They actually are a fully immersive generation. So I have young people as young as four coding in Python um, and, and creating games. My youngest entrepreneur, which I've mentored, is 11. He made his first 16 million at 11. So they literally rewire our world without any reference to the systems that we we know about and the way in which we currently serve our customers. So I think that the impact Gen Z have had, 40% in that 10 years, Gen Alpha, I know already it'll be far quicker than that. It won't take 10 years. In fact, as I say, I've got a five-year-old who will tell you that it will, by the time he's eight, um, and uh, the thing about them is they literally don't start thinking about what they do from the, the, from the place that we imagine. So they have a completely different vision for this world. So I do think the acceleration we talk about with technology, because Gen Alpha will effectively be our, our first generation that actually leverage the Internet of Things, will be much, much quicker. So we're talking about five years for dramatic changes now, not 10 would be my view. And I know that because um, we're building that technology already. Our technology is already nine years in advance of what the world's doing. And that's not to mention our research project, which is working on 2,400. And um, they're actually off in space, that lot. My lot are cosmologists and astrophysicists and what have you. They're doing that piece. But I'm still on planet with what I'm doing. But I already know that, that five years from now, it will be a vastly different place. And, and so when you were talking about those things that are going to be happening, and so I, I presume you're talking about you know, a lot of things such as artificial intelligence and all the, um, you know, uh, yeah, so you're thinking of VR and AR. That's and it, VR that. and AR. Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's robotics, you know. I mean, I we we have robots that run our office because we don't need people to do jobs that are too menial, you know, so mm. the robots do, do that those jobs. We have real people to do quite difficult things. Mm. Um, and so, yes, we're talking about technology that surrounds us. And, and the most of that technology is already with us, but not necessarily in a connected way. Whereas actually it will be more of an immersive way. So, so Tony, in, to, in terms of talking about AR, VR or GR as it's called, or the general sort of um, element of that, because it's, mm. it's all merging together these days, um, that is a really good way of looking at it because that next five years is that, that immersion experience. And, mm. and Generation Alpha are an immersion generation, whereas Generation Z are a kinesthetic generation, they they are haptic in the sense that they touch things and they are not visual learners. They're not auditory learners. They literally are, you know, they get involved with it. Their whole body's involved with it. Whereas um, Gen Alpha are very much a, um, an immersion generation. So everything is an experience of which they're the center of and it's around them. So something like Oculus, if anybody listening has, has ever um, experienced Oculus, it's an amazing gaming platform, but you are in the center of it and you control that entire universe that is the way generation alpha work so from a client point of view um 
they what they need is something radically different we've we've served generation z always until january this year when everything has moved for us into a generation alpha um space but the zero to hero flight minery program that i talked about in the beginning is all about meeting the need of the client not the need of the company I mean, obviously, like any company, we're focused on profit, but we have um, an amazing ability to generate our own R&D, research and development. So we have um, uh, long-term projects with governments and banks and people like that that pay us a fair amount of money, and we, we channel most of that into research. So for us, it's about understanding how we best serve. So if I can bring it into a little bit of realism, what that actually means is... Anybody who's listening, if you um, understand that perhaps, I mean, again, I don't know the age range of anybody who's listening, but you'll have come across in work customers who just expect a more personalized way of dealing with things. Mm. What we do at Flying Binary is we everything we do is a self-service model. So the fact that we are IT people is actually irrelevant. The technology is the is the bit that we want to slide away and make an immersion experience. And actually, for our users that use our technology, they have it in their hands. They don't need an army of IT people. Uh, they possibly have some robots on the back end they don't know about. But the reality of it is it's theirs. And so they, whatever expertise they've got, they use it with our tools. And it's built for humans to do work that IT folks would have done you know, 10 years ago or something like that. And so Mm -hmm. for us, the Zero to Hero uh, flight management program came about because people who were prepared to learn new technology and prepared to explore how you might put it into practice in whatever they're doing to serve their clients have become the heroes of their companies and often have ended up on the board. But that's because we've enabled that because our direction is to give them tech tools that where the tech just fades, the tech just gives them exactly what they need to do, you know, to bring their talents to the fore. That's because we've developed them for Gen Z and that's the way Gen Z work. But it works for all all generations. It's not just, you know, our younger people who can use them. Um, It takes a little bit longer and there's a little bit more. I'm not sure about this, you know, if they're off an older cohort. But the, Mm. the results that they get when they become the domain expert and the technology working for them, they love that. And I think in terms of creating that wow experience for your customers, that's the thing we've done. And that's the thing we love the most. The fact that they can get on with their second line support. They're literally making changes with technology for themselves. Hmm. I mean, only when you talked about education and, you know, you've been talking about sort of mm-hmm. technology and so on. So how, how is education changing? Well, that's a really interesting one because we've done a lot of very detailed work in education because that's where where I started. So the reason I I, um, started this whole thing was to give our Generation Z a level playing field in their examinations and effectively ended up building a technology uh, platform for them to use when they were 11 every day in the classroom that they could then um, use for their examinations we get a two grade uplift at GCSE so the when they're 16 they can usually get two extra grades by this approach um, because the technology works for them and then when they take their you know pre-university exams again I'm not sure where people are in the world listening um, but when they're 18 usually a one grade uplift and what that gives them is an opportunity to take an entrepreneurial route 
or to take a, you know, a, a further education route into universities. And so for education, our young people, particularly our Generation Z, they're increasingly not going to university because they're already working in the world mm. when they're, you know, not usually as young as five, but James is, is a little bit of an exception. Not necessarily as young as 11 when they're inventing something, you mm. know, as Tony did. But because they are already experiencing problems in the world that they think, well, I'll just fix that because that's how they think, then mm. they're actually doing that. So oftentimes education is still a Victorian linear system where we're all expected to do the same thing. And mm. um, quite frankly, we have a, an certainly in the UK an increasing number of young people who after they're 14, they don't bother to stay. Um, because they found something else to do or they just don't turn up. And mm. so for them, they get their learning from, you know, other places, um, not necessarily great places. It depends what they're looking to do. But they learn as a cohort. They have, the, you know, they, they work with one another. They're very much that collaborative generation that I talked about. And so often they switched off from school. Now, you know, lots of people still go through the standard education system. But it is now at the place where I'm talking about for the empathy economy, it's not going to serve them. It really isn't going to serve them. They're going to need completely different things. So this equation I've talked to you about, I've given you this sort of opportunity piece, you know, mm -hmm. when it comes wrapped as something to you, which might be a stroppy customer, it mm -hmm. might be something that's failed or a career path that's ended. Have a look at that and see whether, in fact, that's an opportunity to adapt to this new world. I talked about passion because actually having something that you passionately believe in, that you can you can move forward with, is a key. And then I talk about having a vision about how that gets delivered. All those three components are what actually is happening with our young people today in the education system. Because those three things, which we use every day at Fly Manor, give you the basis of an entrepreneurial mindset. So a portion of my work, just a few days in a month, or like I just have had 6,000 people at the big Excel exhibition center in London, we teach what we call intrapreneurial mindset, which means if you don't happen to have a business right now, lots mm. of those things are actually applicable to you. And if you can serve whoever your client or customer is with those three things, doesn't matter where you are or what you do, you will be, um, you will be that that hero you'll have gone from I don't expect your listeners are zero but you'll have gone from something that didn't serve you where mm. you are serving in a wider way and I think the thing about education is that's what Gen Z are doing anyway so we have you know Generation Z that are leaving school at 18 now and are not going on to university they're going into a more of an applied um, education system and and essentially there's been maybe between 16 and 18, a debate about whether that serves them either. Our education system really has, has um, dramatically got to change. Hmm. And, and some of the things you're saying there, are you referring more to how things are in the UK or globally? No, I mean, I, as smart cities are, I get a chance to to um, look at this at a global level. And also, I'm a science diplomat for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. And one of the things I did... Um, was speak at Davos this year about the future of the cybersecurity industry. And it's given me the opportunity to launch an initiative um, on behalf of the UK where this collaborative um, empathy economy that I'm talking about has been launched initially with our Commonwealth family as we leave the European Union and we, we look at a new future which is delivering the Internet of Things um, to working with collaboratively with those nations 
um, to assist them and to be part of um, the defeating of global corruption. And now wider, um, 79 countries, uh, wider than the 53 Commonwealth countries now, about the way we will we'll collaborate to this new future. So I see this all over the world. Um, and when I say all over the world, I spent the last three years of 2018 in Russia. At three, three months of 2018 in Russia, I've been to Iran. As I said, I'll be off to the Middle East next. So um, the, the, the theme of Davos this year was globalization and the fact that the world is ever more connected. And how does that mean we leverage what we do with technology and how does that change our society? So at a, a very deep level and at a very top level, um, the world is, is waking up to that. 50% of the world online gives us many, many more options to, to sort of serve the clients or customers that we that we that we do serve. And from what you were saying, it would it would seem like I mean I, I could be completely I, I could have misread this, but it seems that there's far more cooperation collaboration going on globally than the media portrays. Uh, well, there you have it. That is such a good point. So um, one of the things when I said to my team when I walked out the, the Royal Society in 2009 and they said what we're going to do I said I have no idea I was I was one of the 250 tech city founders tech city is the, was the first virtual city on earth that looked at this whole thing and was the non, number one digital hub in the world until last year that actually isn't a, a, a real problem because those 250 tech cities founders there's 220 of us left but we founded we seeded 5.6 million companies in the UK. So the UK has a very powerful entrepreneur engine. And as one of the 100 most powerful entrepreneurs in the UK, I'm, I've been able to be part of that repositioning. And the thing about this whole piece is because we have unlocked the, the entrepreneurial element of our country and we've had huge success, we now have not just one virtual city, we have 33 in the UK. It's quite a small place, but... Um, there is a, an entrepreneurial mindset that exists here. We're able to help other countries look at that. But the interesting thing for me was, what did I do first? Well, the first thing I did for the, to, to put this empathy economy opportunity to work was I, um, I met up with a fellow journalist, to say fellow journalist, I was not a journalist at the time, who was um, uh, head of uh, the the one of the, the key blogs on the Guardian newspaper. He said, I love your work. I said, I love your work. We said, oh, we should work together and had a chat. And then we did. We worked on something which happened to be the WikiLeaks project. But we told the world a very different story than all the hoo-ha you've heard about. Hmm. And that, that work today has, has generated an entire industry. So from Simon and myself, Simon's now head of news at Google, um, uh, we created a data journalism industry, which is 7 million strong across the world. So we seeded that, all of that, back in 2014. And you'll have heard of Panama Papers and Paradise Papers and the opiate scandal and, and the fourth one that hasn't broken yet. But as, as data journalists, as journalists and investigative journalists, really, we're actually telling the truth of the world, which is creating a new fabric of understanding. And personally, in Flying Binary, we have 34 million people that consume those stories. But they consume those stories to help us. So if I need to know um, about the tsunami in Japan, that's, um, the, the tornado in Japan that's coming over, I actually have, I'm able to connect with people 
on the ground in Japan and ask them questions about what's actually going on because mm. that's what we're able to do now. And, and the thing about journalism is investigative journalism always sets a context. And one of, the, one of our more powerful journalists, who I won't mention any names, said to me, okay, you, you and your it's going to work like this and empathy economy and all of that. How come I, given who I am, don't know the things you do. And I'm actually in the normal, you know, top of the range media. And mm. I said to him, David, I won't give you any clues as to who it is. David, what do you, what do you pay for you? Where do you, where do you pay for your, your news? Mm. How much do you pay for your news? And he goes, but I'm, I said, I know who you are, but how much do you pay for your news? And he said, well, I get it from my mates and my colleagues. I said, oh, I pay for my news. I pay to support investigative journalists i mainly pay for news that i disagree with journalists i disagree with there's a few journalists who i think are amazing and i pay for them as well Mm. to consume what they write but most of the payments we make in our company we all have our own budgets for this is to is to learn from people who disagree with us Mm. to find out what they might know that we ought to we ought to investigate so i think the the one of the things i see as a change across the world as millennials have across the world we've lost the opportunity for debate and we've become quite homogenous in our views mm. and no more has that been true since 2016 with the changes in the in the democracies in in um, the uk and the us mm. where we've had polarized debates but they've not really been debates we haven't shared views we haven't tried to understand the other side mm. and so i think that journalism itself unless it's investigative journalism unless it's the data journalism uh, that that is bringing you things like panama papers is not looking at things in a deep enough level it's quite superficial but then let me give you a stat in europe where i work as a as an internet of things leader i'm just setting up the new agenda for europe um 51 percent of our european population consume free news Mm. Now, I'd ask your listeners, where do you get your news from and how much do you pay for it? Because mm. I think it's a fallacy to expect something that we get for free to be anything other than an opinion that has possibly an agenda behind it that doesn't agree with ours. Mm. And, and do you see that changing? Well, certainly as journalists, we aim to change it. As investigative journalists, we aim to change it. And I would say that 34 million people across the world that consume what Flying Binary does, which is only one node on those 7 million nodes that are connected um, across the world, means that there are many people out there that do want to be able to look at the world in a way that you serve them up the story. They'll make their own mind up. So there's many ways that that's actually perpetuating itself across the world. But one of the changes alongside the economic leverage that Generation Z have, is that they don't work as a homogenous cohort. They don't use that hive mind. The way in which they check things is very different. So the way in which they consume content and what they believe is very different. And so as well as influencing economically, they're actually influencing some of the debate as well. So I think that we'll see that shift as we go into 2020 more dramatically than we do today. So for people who are listening who are thinking, yeah, actually, all, all of the news I consume is free and they're thinking, well, is there an alternative? So what, what would you say to them? How would they be able to change that? Well, for me, I always say to people, um, cast around until you find somebody that, that resonates with you. The thing about the whole thing I've described since 2009 is called, in, as, as a web scientist, we call it Web 3.0. 
It's the web of resonance. So is it something that's in Web 3.0? If it resonates with you as a human, it is. So so start to look at where else you might consume. Don't just go online. Look at printed media still. Look at, you know, apps and what have you. And find the journalists that – it's up to you. I find the journalists that disagree with me because it's like, what do you think you know that I don't know? I'd like to understand that. Mm. That's because I'm an investigative journalist, and so I'm, I'm basically quite nosy. Mm. Um, and so it's like, oh, let me – let me know about that a curiosity is a is a great trait to have hmm. um but um but it, it might work if what you're going to do is look for news that reinforces your view you might as well not pay for that hmm. because quite frankly you, you can just consume that for free online just find the things that are putting out what could arguably in the fake news arena be called propaganda hmm. which just happens to coincide with your view but i mean i i went originally back to the sort of the staple national newspapers the respected newspapers you know, like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times particularly, because um, I know the journalists there and, and and periodicals like The Economist and things like that, where where people are actually, you know, they have a, a large staff of people that literally keep a finger on the pulse. I don't always agree with them. I particularly don't agree with some of the things they're doing. Mm. But they will... It, they will allow me to explore things that I wouldn't normally come across. Mm. And so we each, each of our employees has a budget to spend on things like that because it's important that we, as an inclusion agenda, see the wider picture. We mm. can't afford to be too sort of singular and too vertical in our thoughts, really. Mm. Well, well, Jackie, I mean, time is flying by here. Um, <laughs> um, what, what are your thoughts on Exceed and Expectations? Well, I think that we can all look again, you know, those three elements of the equation I gave you at what um, we can all do, you know, so starting now, starting tomorrow um, to say what we bring, our talents that we bring to what we do. Um, and and essentially, that's one client at a time. That's one project at a time. That's one, you know, on the passion side of things, it might be a particular project you can't quite get to. So it's something you've got on the back burner that you're going to keep alive. But I would say that there's one note of caution that I haven't mentioned yet. I, I briefly mentioned I shared um, at Davos where we move into Gen Alpha and, and all of that. But the reality of the change to Gen Alpha is something else entirely that has, that has happened. So I was speaking about the future of the cybersecurity industry at Davos. Mm. And um, it was a very short talk. I said there wasn't one. And, and then proceeded to drop a great big rock in the pond about why Generation Z have pointed us to a new opportunity and what Gen Alpha have to say about it. Mm. But as a result of having that opportunity to be at Davos and to be now connected as part of the World Economic Forum team, I wanted to give your listeners, whilst I've given a really hopefully um, uh, an, an exciting and a, an, and a mind-opening view of the future, there is one piece that I, I haven't yet said, which is really important, which is around the cybersecurity landscape. Mm. Um, quite frankly, people like me are only 8% of the world that look at this every day. Mm. Um, but we largely have no business experience. I'm quite an exception that do, does what I do. Mm. And yet your listeners are of one kind or another, have our business, um, our business through and through. Mm. And those two things don't meet. Mm. And we have a genuine problem now. Cyber attacks and data fraud are the second and the seventh. Lo- so cyber attacks are the second global risk to all our businesses 
and data fraud is the seventh and it's climbing. Mm. So from a World Economic Forum research, we've literally just got the figures through. And the annual cost of cybercrime is increasing. And so just between 2017 and 18, which is where the research was, the cost increased by 12% on top of what we already have. So one of the things I wanted to, to draw attention to all of this is as we connect our society, as we talk about you know, what we might do to, to serve and create that more exceptional experience, which I've largely spent the time talking about, the, the caveat is we need to have this in mind. And I just want to give you the top level um, view from the World Economic Forum. This whole research piece is a really complicated piece of research, but it's a global view across 141 countries. My work so far has only covered 90. Mm. Um, and the technology risks, the, the whole technology push that I've talked about is in the top five in every one of those countries. Mm. So every country sees this as a risk and doesn't know what to do about it. Mm. And the, the, the economic act, um, impact of that 12% increase across all of those sectors within all of those countries is huge. And so even the seven, the seven largest con- economies in the world, which are the US, China, Japan, Germany, UK, France, and India, cyber is the most pressing risk because those are the biggest economies and those are the ones that cyber criminals are about. And so I, what I want to say to, to everybody that's listening is, have that in your mind that the figures are increasing and that means that it becomes all of our perspective. It becomes part of what we all do. And I wanted to bring it a little bit closer to home as well because from the Internet of Things point of view, I'm sat in my studio here talking to Tony and I have, I'm just quickly looking at my list here, I have apart from two, three things, I have... All of these risks sat within, I don't know, um, well, within my house. Um, the home automation that's happening individually, you know, different devices that we're bringing home mm. are our biggest risk. The number one risk to our homes are our thermostats and those being hacked. Mm. And then second one is our alarm system. Both the mine are enabled. Uh, obviously ours is slightly different mm-hmm. um, but then the third one is smoke detector all the way through to the top 10 risk and number 10 risk is your lighting so I think one of the things to say in what we're all doing about creating exceptional experiences we must have a mindset that looks to that um, that cyber risk that's created around whatever we're doing because one of the things I tell you about our, our customers in that zero to hero program that they say because they have flying binary who has their back on this one, that's what that's another reason they say that they're the hero when they work with us. Because actually some of this stuff is complicated and they have this with us. Now I know this is likely to be I don't know about yourself, Tony, but for your listeners going, huh? What? Mm. So I've asked my team to pull together these numbers because I just blah told you everything. Mm-hmm. But I've actually brought together both the business risk. And the home risk, because I think, you know, we're all we've all got our own places we live and we need to think of it at home as well as at work. And have a I'm basically going to give I've given Tony a link that he can share with you so you can get this and have a look at it. Mm. So with everything I've painted about, you know, creating that exceptional experience, there is a one piece that needs to be almost the caveat, which is around. And what when we're doing that, 
are we doing about the risk around cyber? Mm. And and hopefully that give people something that they can confound their colleagues with, they can um, they can talk to their boss about, but also think about how they can help with that. Because the one thing we know about cyber criminals is community defeats cyber criminals. As we all get what we call cyber smart, um, we're launching a membership around this so that entrepreneurs get an, get access to this information on a regular basis. But as we all get cyber smart, that actually um, sort of disinherits the cyber criminals. And so I think that that's the key thing that I would say that wraps this whole thing together. And I believe everybody can contribute towards that positively. So we actually have a safer world for us all. So if people want to get more educated and some of those things you mentioned, what they would go to your uh, flying binary site or where would they go to? Well, you see, this is a tricky one because obviously we don't want the criminals gone there. Mm. So, so I've given the download link to you, which obviously goes to your community. Mm. For the moment, I have um, a page on Facebook called um, Cyber Smart Entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. But we are, and if you connect with me there, we've also on the the download I've given you with all the numbers, I've, we've got um, Twitter and LinkedIn and and all of those things. You can connect with me there. I will be sharing how they can get the wider piece. But in the meantime, I'm putting out this information um, for everybody. So, for example, if you're an Android phone user and you are not aware of the Joker malware that happened that is literally raiding your credit card, then there's information on that. Mm. We know now, we thought there were 200,000 people affected. We know now there's um, 470,000 people affected. And I have a whole set of people who contacted me saying, do you know the only the you're the only person that could tell us what to do to stop the criminals raiding our credit cards? Mm. Because even our handset um, providers, our carriers, couldn't tell us how to switch it off. Mm. So I think that we I've made those things available on our, on my Facebook page of Cyber Smart Entrepreneurs, and then we will be launching something where you can get the deeper dive stuff and get advice that's specific to your own business. Um, at the moment, we're waiting to get beyond Brexit. But we'll be launching that, if not before Christmas, be in the new year, where you'll be able to get access to that and the criminals won't. Well, all of those links you mentioned will be in the show notes. So anyone who's listening didn't quite catch that, that all of that is in the uh, the show notes, which you'll find below the episode. So if people want to find out more about you, Jackie, where, where would they go to? Well, again, I, in the in the download I've given you, I've actually got links on there. So you can click on that and you, mm. you'll get my uh, personal accounts, Twitter and LinkedIn and, and Facebook and what have you. Be delighted to connect with anybody and answer any questions. Okay. And just before we finish, you, you mentioned to me that there was a quotation you quite liked. Do you want to tell us about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So for me, when we think about, before we had the Flying Binary Zero to Hero program, that was one of our banking customers who said, this is just awesome what you folks do. Mm. Yeah, but, so I just give you, if I can just tell, take a little, a couple of minutes to tell Christopher's story. So Christopher was one of the people who's just mind, massively intrigued by what we were doing as part of the banking change. And he would, he would haunt my team and he would be having his lunch with them. People were going, who is this guy? I'm like, I don't know. He's from somewhere in the bank, but he just loves what you do. And he's asking a ton of questions. And he, one day he sat down for lunch. He said, I've worked something out. I said, oh, yes. He said, I've worked this out. And everybody around the table went quiet. And they went, say that again. And he said, I've realized 
and actually what he'd because he'd been immersed in in the change that we were doing and he'd, he'd you know he'd sort of seen what we were doing as an opportunity he was quite passionate about listening but he said there must be something in this that I know Christopher knows because you don't actually know banking and what I'm doing in this bank mm. so I have a vision that I can take what you're doing and use this entrepreneurial mindset you tell me happens and come up with something and that led to that company um, landing a 13.6 billion uh, business wow. so Christoph is not now um, some backroom guy that nobody knows hmm. <laughs> um, and so one that that came that's where the, the zero to hero flight manager program came from because when people hear about the story they go wow and this happened to me hmm. but before that happened before that whole thing came about while we were still digging the trenches for what we do um, in 2015, I believe, I a friend of mine, because um, uh, I I used to keynote with Steve Wozniak from um, co-founder of Apple mm. um, in Sweden, and a friend of mine in Sweden said, "You have to see this." You know, he said, "You just have to," and it was Steve Jobs's Stanford address to the graduates, mm. and it's called on YouTube. You get it. Stay hungry, stay foolish. Mm. And that encapsulates customer service for me because it's all about being able to serve, staying hungry to see what you can do and how your talents bring to the fore and staying foolish. When people like disregard you or they think you didn't matter, like Christoph, you just absorb it. You just do what you're doing. And one day it's you that becomes that comes up with that nugget of gold that, quite frankly, none of my team and nobody else in that bank could have come up with. But because he'd actually applied that that equation I, I mentioned and just pursued it with passion, but he stayed hungry and he stayed foolish. And really, for me, if ever I get the experience where it's like, oh, that didn't go so well, or, oh, that person was really not nice to me, mm. um, I watched that video. Mm. So that, to me, is the ultimate customer service quote, stay hungry, stay foolish. Well, Jackie, it's been a, a pleasure. There were so many more questions I wanted to ask, but time <laughs> time just wasn't on our side. So, but it was yes. Thank thank you for sharing all of that, and um, I'll, I'm sure a lot of people will be checking out some of the links that you mentioned. And yeah, best of luck with everything that you do. Thank you, Tony, and thank you ever so much for the opportunity to speak to you and your community. I'd, I'd love to hear if you get an, an option of, of, you know, the sort of uh, any feedback from this. I'd love to hear what everybody's doing with it because it's it's those changes in that, you know, that exceptional sort of exceptional experience that is changing our world. And and welcome to the empathy economy, everybody. <laughs> thank you, Jackie. Next week, episode 61 is with Trish Springsteen. She is a mentor, a speaker, an author, and she is Australia's leading expert empowering introverts. So that's quite an interesting episode. Next week with Trish Springsteen, a distant cousin of someone you may have heard of. Hope you have a fantastic week. Why not share the episode with anyone you know who may get value from some of the content in this week's episode, especially the cybersecurity section, which most people will find some value from. It'll be great if you can leave a review on iTunes or one of the other podcast platforms. Be completely honest with what you feel, feel about the, the podcast. I'm not asking for it to be five star, although that would be fantastic. And hope you have a fantastic week and see you next week.